Section 6 of Selections of the History of the Franks. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by B. Tootin. Selections of the History of the Franks by Gregory of Tours. Translated by Ernest Brehaut. Book 4, Chapters 1 to 26. Here begins the fourth book with happy auspices. 1. Queen Clotilda dies at Tours and is buried at Paris. 2. King Clothar had ordered all the churches of his kingdom to pay into his treasury a third of their revenues. But when all the other bishops, though grudgingly, had agreed to this and signed their names, the blessed Injuriosus scorned the command and manfully refused to sign, saying, if you attempt to take the things of God, the Lord will take away your kingdom speedily, because it is wrong for your storehouses to be filled with the contributions of the poor, whom you yourself ought to feed. He was irritated with the king and left his presence without saying farewell. Then the king was alarmed, and being afraid of the power of the blessed Martin, he sent after him with gifts, praying for pardon and admitting the wrongfulness of what he had done and asking also that the bishop avert from him by prayer the power of the blessed Martin. 3. The king had seven sons by several wives, namely by Ingunda, Gunthar, Childeric, Charibert, Gunthram, Sigebert, and a daughter, Clotsinda, by Aragunda, sister of Ingunda, Chilperic, and by Chansina he had Cramnus. I will tell why it was he married his wife's sister. When he was already married to Ingunda and loved her alone, he received a hint from her saying, My lord has done with his handmaid what he pleased and has taken me to his couch. Now let my lord the king hear what his servant would suggest to make his favor complete. I beg that you consent to find a husband for my sister, a man who will be of advantage to your servant and possess wealth so that I shall not be humiliated, but rather exalted, and shall be able to serve you more faithfully. To this request he gave heed, and being of a wanton nature, he fell in love with Aragunda, and went to the estate on which she was living, and married her himself. Having done this, he returned to Ingunda, and said, I have tried to do the favor which your sweet self asked of me. I sought for a man of riches and wisdom to unite to your sister, but I found no one better than myself. And so allow me to tell you that I have married her, which I think will not displease you. And she replied, Let my lord do what seems good in his eyes, only let his handmaid live in favor with the king. Now Gunthar, Cramnus, and Childeric died in their father's lifetime. Of the death of Cramnus I shall write later. And Albin, king of the Lombards, married Clotsinda, his daughter. Injuriosus, bishop of Tours, died in the seventeenth year of his episcopate, and Baudinus, a former official of King Clothar, succeeded him, the sixteenth after the death of the blessed Martin. 4. Chanel, Count of the Bretons, killed three of his brothers. He wished to kill Macleavus also, and seized him and kept him in prison loaded with chains. But he was freed from death by Felix, Bishop of Nantes. After this, he swore that he would be faithful to his brother, but for some reason or other he became inclined to break his oath. Chanel was aware of this and began to attack him again, and when Macleavus saw that he could not escape, he fled to another count of that district, Cronomore by name. 
When Cronomore learned that Macleavis's pursuers were near at hand, he hid him in a box underground and heaped a mound over it in the regular way, leaving a small air hole so that he could breathe. And when his pursuers came, they said, Behold, here lies Macleavis, dead and buried. On hearing this, they were glad and drank on his tomb and reported to his brother that he was dead. And his brother took the whole of his kingdom. For since Clovis's death, the Bretons have always been under the dominion of the Franks, and their rulers have been called counts, not kings. Macleavis rose from underground and went to the city of Van, and there received the tonsure and was ordained bishop. But when Chanau died, he left the priesthood, let his hair grow long, and took back not only his brother's kingdom, but also the wife whom he had abandoned when he became a priest. However, he was excommunicated by the bishops. What his end was, I shall describe later. Now Bishop Badinus died in the sixth year of his episcopate, and the abbot Gunthar was appointed in his place, the seventeenth after the passing of the blessed Martin. 5. How St. Gall, Bishop of Clermont, averted the plague from his people. And when St. Gall had departed from this world, and his body had been washed and carried to the church, Cato the priest immediately received the congratulations of the clergy on becoming bishop. And as if he were already bishop, he took under his control all the church property, removed the superintendents, and cast the lesser officials out, and regulated everything himself. 6. The bishops who came to St. Gall's funeral said to Cato the priest after the funeral, We see that you are the choice of by far the largest part of the people. Come then, join us, and we will bless and ordain you as bishop. The king is very young, and if any fault is found with you, we will take you under our protection and deal with the leading men of Theodobald's kingdom so that no wrong shall ever be done you. Trust us faithfully, since we promise that even if some loss shall come to you, we will make it all good from our own properties. But he was puffed up with the pride of vainglory and said, You know from widespread report that from the beginning of my life I have always lived religiously, that I have fasted, delighted in almsgiving, often kept watch without ceasing, and have frequently continued the singing of psalms without a break the whole night through. The Lord God, to whom I have paid such service, will not allow me to be deprived of this office. For I attained all the grades of the clergy as directed in the canons. I was reader ten years. I performed the duties of subdeacon five years. I have been priest now for twenty years. What more is left for me except to receive the office of bishop which my faithful service deserves? You then return to your cities and busy yourself with whatever tends to your advantage. For I intend to gain this office in the matter prescribed by the canons. The bishops heard this and departed, cursing his empty boasting. 7. He was accordingly designated to be bishop by the choice of the clergy, and when he had taken charge of everything, though he was not yet ordained, he began to make various threats against the archdeacon Cautinus, saying, I will cast you out, I will degrade you, I will cause many sorts of violent death to threaten you. And he answered, I wish to have your favor, pious master, and if I win it, there is one kindness I can do. Without any trouble on your part and without any deceit, I will go to the king and obtain the office of bishop for you, asking no reward except to win your favor. But the other was suspicious that he meant to make a mock of him and rejected the offer with great disdain. And when Cautinus perceived that he was in disgrace and was the object of ill report, he pretended sickness and left the city by night, 
going to King Theodewald and reporting the death of St. Gall. And when he and his court were informed of it, they assembled the bishops at the city of Metz, and Cautinus the archdeacon was ordained bishop. And on the arrival of the messengers of the priest Cato, he was already bishop. Then by the king's order, these clerks were delivered over to him, and all that they had brought from the property of the church, and bishops and officials of the treasury were appointed to accompany him, and they sent him on his way to Clermont. And he was gladly received by the clergy and citizens, and was thus made bishop of Clermont. But later, enmity arose between him and Cato the priest, because no one was ever able to influence Cato to submit to his bishop. A division of the clergy appeared, and some followed the bishop Cautinus, and others the priest Cato. There was a great drawback to them. And Cautinus saw that Cato could not be forced in any way to submit to him, and took all church property from him and his friends, and whoever took his part, and left them weak and empty. But whoever of them returned to him again, again received what he had lost. 8. King Aguila of Spain loses cities to the emperor which his successor, Athanagild, recovers. 9. When Theodevald had grown up, he married Voldetrada. This Theodevald, they say, had a bad disposition, so that when he was angry with anyone whom he suspected of taking his property, he would make up a fable, saying, A snake found a jar full of wine. He went in by its neck and greedily drained what was inside. But being puffed out by the wine, he could not go out by the opening by which he had entered. And the owner of the wine came, and when the snake tried to get out but could not, he said to him, First vomit out what you have swallowed, and then you will be able to go free. This fable made him greatly feared and hated. Under him, Bucalanus, after bringing all Italy under the rule of the Franks, was slain by Narses, and Italy was taken over by the emperor's party, and there was no one to recover it later. In his time we saw grapes grow on the tree we call Salcum, elder tree, without having any vine on it. And the blossoms of the same trees, which as you know usually produce black seeds, yielded the seeds of grapes. And at that time a star coming from the opposite direction was seen to enter the disk of the fifth moon. I suppose these signs announced the death of the king. He became very sick and could not move from the waist down. He gradually grew worse and died in the seventh year of his reign, and King Clothar took his kingdom, taking Voldetrada, his wife, to his bed. But being rebuked by the bishops, he left her, giving her to Duke Garivald and sending his son Cramnus to Clermont. 10. King Clothar destroys the greater part of the rebellious Saxons and lays Thuringia waste. 11. Bishop Gunthar died at Tours, and at a suggestion, it is said, of Bishop Cautinus, the priest Cato was requested to undertake the government of the church at Tours and the clergy accompanied by Lubastes, keeper of the relics and abbot, went in great state to Clermont. And when they had declared the king's will to Cato, he would not answer them for a few days. But they wished to return, and said, Declare your will to us so that we may know what we ought to do, otherwise we will return home. For it was not of our own will that we came to you, but at the command of the king. And Cato, in his breed for vainglory, got together a crowd of poor men and instructed them to shout as follows, Good father, why do you abandon us, your children, whom you taught until now? Who will strengthen us with food and drink if you go away? We beg you not to leave us, whom you are wont to support. Then he turned to the clergy of Tours and said, You see now, beloved brothers, how this multitude of the poor loves me. 
I cannot leave them to go with you. They received this answer and returned to Tor. Now Cato had made friends with Cramnus and got a promise from him that if King Clothar should die at that time, Cautinus was to be cast out at once from the bishop's office and Cato was to be given control of the church. But he who despised the chair of the blessed Martin did not get what he desired, and in this was fulfilled that which David sang, saying, He refused the blessing, and it shall be kept far from him. He was puffed up with vanity, thinking that no one was superior to him in holiness. Once he hired a woman to cry aloud in the church as if possessed to say that he was holy and great and beloved by God. But Cautinus the bishop was guilty of every crime and unworthy to hold the office of bishop. 12. Now Cautinus, on taking up the duties of bishop, became greatly addicted to wine and proved to be of such a character that he was loathed by all. He was often so befuddled by drink that four men could hardly take him away after dinner. Because of this habit, he became an epileptic later on, a disease which frequently showed itself in public. He was also so avaricious that if he could not get some part of the possessions of those whose boundaries touched him, he thought it was ruin for him. He took from the stronger with quarrels and abuse, and violently plundered the weaker. And as Arsalius says, he would not pay the price because he despised doing so, and would not accept deeds because he thought them useless. There was at that time a priest, Anastasius, of free birth, who held some property secured by deeds of Queen Clotilde of glorious memory. Usually when he met him, the bishop would entreat him to give him the deeds of the queen mentioned above, and when Anastasius postponed complying with the will of his bishop, the latter would try now to coax him with kind words and now to terrify him with threats. When he continued unwilling to the end, he ordered him to be brought to the city and there shamelessly detained, and unless he surrendered the deeds, he was to be loaded with insults and starved to death. But the other made a spirited resistance and never surrendered the deeds, saying it was better for him to waste away with hunger for a time than to leave his children in misery. Then by the bishop's command, he was given over to the guards with instructions to starve him to death if he did not surrender these documents. Now there was in the church of St. Cassius the martyr, a very old and remote crypt in which was a great tomb of Parian marble wherein it seems the body of a certain man of long ago had been placed. In this tomb, upon the dead body, the living priest was placed, and the tomb was covered with the stone with which it had been covered before, and guards were placed at the entrance. But the faithful guards, seeing that he was shut in by a stone as it was winter, lit a fire and under the influence of hot wine fell asleep. But the priest, like a new Jonah, prayed insistently to the Lord to pity him from the interior of the tomb as from the belly of hell. And the tomb being large, as we have said, he was able to extend his hands freely wherever he wished, although he could not turn his whole body. There came from the bones of the dead, as he used to relate, a killing stench, which made him shudder not only outwardly, but in his inward parts as well. While he held his robe tightly against his nose and could hold his breath, his feelings were not the worst, but when he thought that he was suffocating and held the robe a little way from his face, he drank in the deadly smell, not merely through mouth and nose, but even, so to speak, through his very ears. Why make too long a story? When he had suffered, as I suppose, like the divine nature, he stretched out his right hand to the side of the sarcophagus and found a crowbar, which had been left between the cover and the edge of the tomb when the cover sank into place. 
Moving this by degrees, he found that with God's help, the stone could be moved. And when it had been moved so far that the priest could get his head out, he made a larger opening with greater ease and so came out bodily. Meanwhile, the darkness of night was overspreading the day, though it had not spread everywhere as yet. So he hastened to another entrance to the crypt. This was closed with the strongest bars and bolts, but was not so smoothly fitted that a man could not see between the planks. The priest placed his head close to this entrance and saw a man go by. He called to him in a low voice. The other heard, and having an axe in his hand, he at once cut the wooden pieces by which the bars were held and opened a way for the priest. And he went off in the darkness and hastened home after vigorously urging the man to say nothing of the matter to anyone. He entered his home and, finding the deeds which the queen mentioned before had given him, took them to King Clothar, informing him at the same time how he had been committed to a living burial by his own bishop. All were amazed and said that never had Nero or Herod done such a deed as to place a live man in the grave. Then Bishop Cautinus appeared before King Clothar, but upon the priest's accusation he retreated in defeat and confusion. The priest, according to directions received from the king, maintained his property as he pleased and kept possession of it and left it to his children. In Cautinus there was no holiness, no quality to be esteemed. He was absolutely without knowledge of letters, both ecclesiastical and secular. He was a great friend of the Jews and subservient to them, not for their salvation, as ought to be the anxious care of a shepherd, but in order to purchase their wares which they sold to him at a higher price than they were worth, since he tried to please them, and they very plainly flattered him. 13. At this time Cramnus lived at Clermont. He did many things contrary to reason, and for this his departure from the world was hastened, and he was bitterly reviled by the people. He made friends with no one from whom he could get good and useful counsel, but he gathered together young men of low character and no stability, and made friends of them only, listening to their advice, and at their suggestion he even directed them to carry off daughters of senators by force. He offered serious insults to Furman, and drove him out of his office as count of the city, and placed Salus, son of Euvodius, in his place. Furman, with his mother-in-law, took refuge in the church. It was Lent, and Bishop Cautinus had made preparations to go in procession singing psalms to the parish of Briode, according to the custom established by St. Gall, as we described above. And so the bishop went forth from the city with loud weeping, afraid that he would meet some danger on the way for King Cramnus had been uttering threats against him. And while he was on the way, the king sent Enachar and Scaphthar, his chief adherents, saying, Go and drag Furman and Caesarea, his mother-in-law, away from the church by force. So when the bishop had departed with psalm singing, as I have said before, the men sent by Cramnus entered the church and strove to calm the suspicion of Furman and Caesarea with many deceitful words. And when they had talked over one thing after another for a long time, walking to and fro in the church, and the fugitives had their attention fixed on what was being said, they drew near to the doors of the sacred temple, which were then open. Then Inachar seized Furman in his arms, and Scaphthar Caesarea, and cast them out from the church, where their slaves were ready to lay hold of them. And they sent them into exile at once." But on the second day, their guards were overcome with sleep, and they saw that they were free and hastened to the church of the blessed Julian, and so escaped from exile. However, their property was confiscated. 
Now, Cautinus had suspected that he himself would be subjected to outrage, and as he walked along on the journey I have told of, he kept nearby a saddled horse. And looking back, he saw men coming on horseback to overtake him, and he cried, Woe is me, for here are the men sent by Cramnus to seize me. And he mounted his horse and gave up his psalm singing, and plying his steed with both heels, arrived all alone and half dead at the entrance of St. Julian's church. As I tell this tale, I am reminded of Sallust's saying, which he uttered with references to the critics of historians. He says, It seems difficult to write history, first because deeds must be exactly represented in words, and second because most men think that the condemnation of wrongdoing is due to ill will and envy. However, let us continue. 14. Now when Clothar, after Theodovald's death, had received the kingdom of Francia and was making a progress through it, he heard from his people that the Saxons were engaged in a second mad outburst and were rebelling against him and contemptuously refusing to pay the tribute which they had been accustomed to pay every year. Aroused by the reports, he hastened toward their country, and when he was near the boundary, the Saxons sent legates to him, saying, We are not treating you contemptuously, and we do not refuse to pay what we have usually paid to your brother and nephews, and we will grant even more if you ask for it. We ask for only one thing, that there be peace so that your army and our people shall not come into conflict. King Clothar heard this and said to his followers, These men speak well. Let us not go against them for fear that we sin against God. But they said, We know that they are deceitful and will not do at all what they have promised. Let us go against them. Again, the Saxons offered half of their property in their desire for peace. Clothar said to his men, Give over, I beg you, from these men, lest the anger of God be kindled against us. But they would not agree to it. Again, the Saxons brought garments, cattle, and every kind of property, saying, Take all this together with half of our land. Only let our wives and little ones remain free and let war not arise between us. But the Franks were unwilling to agree even to this. And King Clothar said to them, Give over, I beseech you, give over from this purpose, for we have not the right word. Do not go to war in which we may be destroyed. If you decide to go of your own will, I will not follow. Then they were enraged at King Clothar and rushed upon him and tore his tent in pieces and overwhelmed him with abuse and dragged him about violently and wished to kill him if he would not go with them. Upon this, Clothar went with them, though unwillingly. And they began the battle and were slaughtered in great numbers by their adversaries, and so great a multitude from both armies perished that it was impossible to estimate or count them. Then Clothar, in great confusion, asked for peace, saying that it was not of his own will that he had come against them, and having obtained peace, he returned home. 15. The people of Tours heard that the king had returned from the battle with the Saxons, and making choice of the priest Euphronius, they hastened to him. When their suggestion had been made, the king replied, I had given directions for Cato the priest to be ordained there. Why has my command been slighted? They answered, We invited him, but he refused to come. And while they were speaking, Cato the priest suddenly appeared to request the king to expel Cautinus and command that he himself be appointed in Clermont. When the king laughed at him, he made a second request, that he should be ordained at Tours, which he had contemptuously refused before. And the king said to him, I at first gave directions that they should ordain you bishop of Tours, 
But as I hear, you look down on that church. Therefore, you shall be kept from becoming master of it. And so he went off in confusion. When the king asked about the holy Euphronius, they told him that he was a grandson of the blessed Gregory, whom I have mentioned before. The king answered, It is a great and leading family. Let the will of God and the blessed Martin be done. Let the choice be confirmed. And according to his command, the holy Euphronius was ordained bishop, the 18th after the blessed Martin. 16. Cramnus, King Clothar's son, opposes Bishop Cautinus at Clermont. He goes to Poitiers and enters into an agreement with his uncle Childebert against Clothar. He assumes authority over part of Clothar's realm, and Clothar sends two other sons, Cheribert and Guntram, against him. When they are ready to fight, Cramnus causes a report of Clothar's death to be circulated, and Cheribert and Guntram hasten off. Cramnus marches to Dijon, where he consults the Bible as to his future. King Clothar, meanwhile, fights the Saxons. 17. Cramnus joins Childebert in Paris. Childebert ravages Clothar's territory as far as Rams. 18. Duke Ostropius takes refuge in St. Martin's Church in fear of Cramnus. Cramnus orders him to be starved in the church, but he obtains drink miraculously and is saved. He later becomes a priest. 19. Medard, Bishop of Soissons, dies. 20. King Childebert fell ill and, after being bedridden for a long time, died at Paris. He was buried in the church of the Blessed Vincent, which he had built. King Clothar took his kingdom and treasures and sent into exile Volthrogatha and her two daughters. Cramnus presented himself before his father, but later he proved disloyal. And when he saw he could not escape punishment, he fled to Brittany and there with his wife and daughters lived in concealment with Chanuber, Count of the Bretons. And Willicar, his father-in-law, fled to the church of St. Martin. Then because of Willicar and his wife, the holy church was burned for the sins of the people and the mockeries which occurred in it. This we relate, not without a heavy sigh. Moreover, the city of Tours had been burned the year before, and all the churches built in it were deserted. Then by order of King Clothar, the church of the Blessed Martin was roofed with tin and restored to its former beauty. Then two hosts of locusts appeared, which passed through Auvergne and Limousin, and as they say, come to the plain of Romagnac, where a battle took place between them, and there was great destruction. Now King Clothar was raging against Cramnus and marched with his army into Brittany against him. Nor was Cramnus afraid to come out against his father. And when both armies were gathered and encamped on the same plain, and Cramnus with the Bretons had marshaled his line against his father, night fell and they refrained from fighting. During the night, Chanuber, Count of the Bretons, said to Cramnus, I think it wrong for you to fight against your father. Allow me tonight to rush upon him and destroy him with all his army. But Cramnus would not allow this to be done, being held back, I think, by the power of God. When morning came, they set their armies in motion and hastened to the conflict. And King Clothar was marching like a new David to fight against Absalom, his son, crying aloud and saying, Look down, Lord, from heaven and judge my cause, since I suffer wicked outrage from my son. Look down, Lord, and judge justly, and give that judgment that thou once gavest between Absalom and his father. When they were fighting on equal terms, the count of the Bretons fled and was slain. 
Then Cramna started in flight, having ships in readiness at the shore. But in his wish to take his wife and daughters, he was overwhelmed by his father's soldiers and captured and bound fast. This news was taken to King Clothar, and he gave orders to burn Cramnus with fire together with his wife and daughters. They were shut up in a hut belonging to a poor man, and Cramnus was stretched on a bench and strangled with a towel, and later the hut was burned over them, and he perished with his wife and daughters. 21. In the fifty-first year of his reign, King Clothar set out for the door of the Blessed Martin with many gifts, and coming to the tomb of the bishop just mentioned at Tours, and repeating all the deeds he had perhaps done heedlessly, and praying with loud groaning that the blessed confessor of God would obtain God's forgiveness for his faults, and by his intercession blot out what he had done contrary to reason, he then returned, and in the fifty-first year of his reign, while hunting in the forest of Quiz, he was seized with a fever and returned thence to a villa in Compiègne. There he was painfully harassed by the fever and said, Alas, what do you think the king of heaven is like when he kills such great kings in this way? Laboring under this pain, he breathed his last, and his four sons carried him with great honor to Soissons and buried him in the church of St. Medard. He died the next day in the revolving year after Cramnus had been slain. 22. The four sons of Clothar make a lawful division of his kingdom. To Charibert is assigned Paris for his capital, to Guntram Orléans, to Chilperic Soissons, to Sigebert Reims. 23. The Huns attack Sigebert and Chilperic takes the opportunity to seize some of his cities. Sigebert recovers them. 24. When King Guntram had taken his part of the realm like his brothers, he removed the patrician Agricola and gave the office of patrician to Celsus, a man of tall stature, strong shoulders, strong arms and boastful words, ready in retort and skilled in the law. And then such a greed for possessing came upon him that he often took the property of the churches and made it his own. Once when he heard a passage from the prophet Isaiah being read in the church, which says, Woe to those who join house to house and unite field to field, even to the boundaries of the place. He is said to have exclaimed, It is out of place to say, Woe to me and my sons. But he left a son who died without children and left the greater part of his property to the churches which his father had plundered. 25. The good king Guntram first took a concubine, Veneranda, a slave belonging to one of his people, by whom he had a son, Gundabad. Later he married Marcatrude, daughter of Magnar, and sent his son Gundabad to Orléans. But after she had a son, Marcatrude was jealous and proceeded to bring about Gundabad's death. She sent poison, they say, and poisoned his drink. And upon his death, by God's judgment, she lost the son she had and incurred the hate of the king, was dismissed by him, and died not long after. After her, he took Osterkild, also named Bobilla. He had by her two sons, of whom the older was called Clothar and the younger Clodomer. 26. Moreover, King Charibet married Ingeberga, by whom he had a daughter, who afterwards married a husband in Kent and was taken there. At that time, Ingeberga had in her service two daughters of a certain poor man, of whom the first was called Markovefa, who wore the robe of a nun, and the other was Meriflid. The king was very much in love with them. 
They were, as I have said, the daughters of a worker in wool. Ingeberga was jealous that they were loved by the king and secretly gave the father work to do, thinking that when the king saw this, he would dislike his daughters. While he was working, she called the king. He expected to see something strange, but only saw this man at a distance weaving the king's wool. Upon this, he was angry and left Ingeberga and married Mariflid. He also had another, a daughter of a shepherd named Theodegild, by whom he is said to have had a son who, when he came from the womb, was carried at once to the grave. In this king's time, Leontius gathered the bishops of his province at the city of Sant and deposed Emery from the bishopric, saying that this honor had not been given him in accordance with the canons. For he had had a decree of King Clothar that he should be ordained without the consent of the metropolitan, who was not present. When he had been expelled from his office, they made choice of Heraclius, then a priest of the church at Bordeaux, and they sent word of these doings in their own handwriting by the priest just named to King Cheribert. He came to Tours and related to the blessed Euphronius what had been done, begging him to consent to subscribe to this choice. But the man of God flatly refused to do so. Now after the priest had come to the gates of the city of Paris and approached the king's presence, he said, Hail, glorious king, the apostolic see sends to your eminence the most abundant greetings. But the king replied, You haven't been at Rome, have you, to bring us the greeting of the pope? It is your father Leontius, the priest went on, who, together with the bishops of his province, sends you greeting and informs you that Cumulus, this is what they used to call Emery as a child, has been expelled from the episcopate because he neglected the sacred authority of the canons and sought actively for the office of bishop in the city of Saint. And so they have sent you their choice in order that his place may be filled, so that when men who violate the canons are condemned according to the rule, the authority of your kingdom will be extended into distant ages. When he said this, the king gnashed his teeth and ordered him to be dragged from his sight and placed on a wagon covered with thorns and thrust off into exile, saying, Do you think that there is no one left of the sons of King Clothar to uphold his father's acts, since these men have cast out without our consent the bishop whom he chose? And he at once sent men of religion and restored the bishop to his place, sending also certain of his officers of the treasury, who exacted from Bishop Leontius one thousand gold pieces, and fined the other bishops up to the limit of their power of payment and so the insult to the prince was avenged. After this, he married Markovefa, sister of Merifled, for which reason they were both excommunicated by the holy bishop Germanus. But since the king did not wish to leave her, she was struck by a judgment of God and died. Not long after, the king himself died. And after his death, Theodegild, one of his queens, sent messengers to King Guntram, offering herself in marriage to him. To which the king sent back this answer. Let her not be slow to come to me with her treasures, for I will take her and make her great among the people, so that she will surely have greater honor with me than with my brother who has just died. And she was glad, and gathered all together, and set out to him. And the king seeing this said, It is better for these treasures to be in my control than in the hands of this woman who has unworthily gone to my brother's bed. Then he took away much and left little, and sent her to a convent at Arles but she took it very hard to be subject to fasts and watches and made proposals to a goth by secret messengers, promising that if he would take her to Spain and marry her, 
she would leave the monastery with her treasures and follow him willingly. This promise he made without hesitation, but when she had got her things together and packed and was ready to go from the convent, the diligence of the abbess frustrated her purpose, and the wicked project was detected, and orders were given to beat her severely and put her under guard. And she continued in confinement to the end of her life on earth, consumed with no slight passions. End of section 6. Recording by B. Tootin.